within the terms of leaving the European Union, it is demonstrably possible not to be a member of the European Union and to be in the European economic, economic yeah, area. The European economic area, in other words, a single market, you know, Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein, has been ruled out. By who? By the, by the government. Yeah, but they could change their mind. It wasn't, wasn't in the referendum, I will take, was it? I would take a £10 bet they don't. We will well, not be in the EEA. That's a very small bet you're taking. Well, um, all right, 100. <laughs> 100, 100 perhaps. Well, who knows what will be, whether you call it the EEA or anything else. I mean, my, my view would be that if, if indeed the, the government has got its act together and really worries about the economy, we can still be in the single market, still be in the customs union oh, during the transitional happen. period. No, but at the Vicky, end of it, at the end, it's, the end, it's the end the point. End you're in denial. There is no Vicky. such thing as an you're end point, in, in my view. It could, could be anything. This week I thought we'd finally get round to discussing the EU referendum, or Brexit as it's since become known. Right off the bat I want to tell you that I voted to remain within the European Union. Um, I did consider voting to leave, but that would have been a what was called a Lexit vote at the time, a left Brexit. Just believing that the EU was a massive organization that basically propped up big business however <clears throat> in the end I decided that it was better to stay within the European Union and, and I think throughout this episode it will become clear as to why that was my decision when the decision was first announced I have to be honest that I was, I was pretty angry um, had plenty of arguments, debates with friends and family um, and I was quite worried uh, and that, that's one thing that's not gone away is, is the worry, the concern. Now I just hope, I really do hope that we get it sorted and we actually do achieve a good deal. I'm not going to get into discussions about whether or not there should be a second referendum. I don't think there's going to be so it's almost a moot point. Um, having said that, I think, you know, during the Brexit uh, campaign itself, the saddest moment for me, the moment when I realised that nothing really mattered with it, was when Michael Gove said, we've had enough of experts. How sad is that? We've had enough of experts. And then since then, since the negotiations have begun, the saddest moment I've found is... Uh, was David Davis, um, who basically turned up to, to negotiations with nothing in front of him, uh, whereas uh, Michel Barnier, who's the EU chief negotiator, had a massive big folder in front of him. Now, what was that full of? I don't know, but at least he turned up with something. And it's no surprise that that, that meeting lasted an hour. And I think, for me, it just feels as though we are unprepared and we don't really know what we're doing and that that worries me however on the other hand i think the president of the european commission jean-claude juncker is a bit of an ass as well i think he's uh he's being antagonistic almost intentionally i don't think that the eu 
negotiators, uh, you know, all, all the word coming out of Brussels, I don't think it's very positive or reassuring to the people of Britain, to be honest. Um, so what what is actually going to happen? Well, it all stems, it all, the, the root of everything is, is this Article 50 that you may have heard mentioned, um, which is the mechanism for leaving the EU, which was set out in 2007 in the Lisbon Treaty. So we've already had 29th of March 2017, Theresa May, British Prime Minister, sent a letter to Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, um, which basically said, this is these are our intentions. Uh, the Great Repeal Bill, as it's been called, was supposed to be introduced in May, it was actually just introduced this month in July, uh, which is basically going to unravel, undo, get rid of all of those EU laws and replace them with British laws. Um, in late 2007, sorry, 2017, um, the divorce settlement between Britain and the EU is supposed to be concluded uh, and the rights of EU citizens are supposed to have been decided by that stage. Also, by around November 2017 um, onwards, till about October 2018, this is when the main uh, negotiations are going on. So the, the main negotiations technically haven't started yet. Uh, by early 2018, um, there's going to be negotiations on future trade deals. And by November 2018, we're supposed to have the conclusion of the negotiations and the start of ratifying whatever that deal is uh, that's come out. In March 2019, this is when it's it's been said that, that that's the deadline for the conclusion of the negotiations and by 2021 this is when we are supposed to be implementing the implementation phase implementing any law um, or bill or, or whatever it is that's been decided um, the agreement to remove us officially from the European Union and start changing our own laws um, and all of that so to actually get this deal, there needs to be agreement from all 27 EU member states. Um, and the intention from the UK government is to uh, is, is fivefold. First of all, to secure a free trade agreement with the EU. Secondly, to remove tariffs and tariff barriers. Thirdly, to agree an implementation phase, which will give businesses time to plan. Uh, fourth, guarantee the rights of EU citizens in the UK and vice versa, um, and fifth and finally, continue collaboration with the EU, whether that's security, defence or research and development. So that's that's the government's sort of bucket list for what they want to achieve. Um, I'll be looking into why they are particularly problematic, um, some more than others. There are some issues there with, with some of the, the things that the UK government is trying to achieve. Um, and also interestingly, according to PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, the only difference between a deal um, and no deal, so a deal with a free trade agreement and no deal at all, and this is something that's obviously been discussed, the fact that Theresa May says uh, no deal is better than a bad deal, well, PwC say that um, if we walk away with no deal um, rather than a free trade agreement deal, 
The only difference is that there will be high disruption to business and the economy if we walk away with no deal. Um, everything else basically <laughs> appears to be the same according to PwC. Nothing else will really change even if we walk away with no deal. But the biggest thing, if we walk away with no deal, the disruption to the economy and to the businesses in this country will be high. Something worth bearing in mind. So the three main things I'm going to consider uh, today, to be honest, it's, it's taken a while to actually go through and figure out how to discuss this, what to talk about, because it's such a massive massive topic and there is so much to consider. I've tried to um, bring it down to three main topics. So the first is people and migration, immigration. Um, obviously very important issue and it, it was um, integral in in a lot of people's decision to, to vote to leave the EU. Um, so I'll be discussing that. Secondly, uh, economics, trade and customs, etc. And third and finally, laws and regulation and a lot of this obviously can be tied in linked together <clears throat> um, but i'm going to try and look at all those three separately so first of all then people and migration now uh, brandon lewis who's somebody i have to be honest i haven't i hadn't heard of until fairly recently because what he said recently he's the immigration minister and he said quote Free movement of labour ends when we leave the EU in the spring of 2019. That's what he said. Free movement of labour ends when we leave the EU in the spring of 2019. So he's basically setting out his stall there, saying that as the immigration minister, they're going to completely end free movement of people by the time that um, Article 50 is... is um, Sorry, not Article 50. By the, by the time that uh, the negotiations are um, completed, concluded. However, the government themselves have uh, published a, a white paper uh, prior to this, a Brexit white paper, which said, quote, uh, there would be a phased process of implementation, which was, which was discussed earlier. The idea that they want it to be a a process um, which does not, and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from uh, another uh, MP here, another member of the cabinet, Amber Rudd. Um, she says, uh, "quote I also want to reassure businesses and EU nationals that we will ensure there is no cliff edge uh, once we leave the block." So, what the government is trying to say there is that they are gonna ensure that it is not an immediate end to um, the free movement and labour because businesses do rely on this and I'll get onto this a bit later. What she has talked about though is trying to ensure the registration and documentation of EU workers. Now we've got an issue where um, the net uh, immigration from the EU according to Business Insider, is, uh, was last year 133,300. 133,300 people from the EU coming to Britain to work. Um, and the government is suggesting that this is going to be reduced 
to the tens of thousands. That's what they're currently saying. What are the problems here then? The biggest problem, as far as I can see it, is that to the European Union, free movement is an absolute central pillar of, of everything that they have built. So we're, we're there talking about a deal with the EU. To get any form of deal with the EU, we will surely need to ensure and to guarantee the free movement of people. And I think that could be potentially problematic for us. So that's something worth considering. Um, also, it, it could possibly lead to a split in the Conservative Party. Uh, again, coming back to Gove, my favourite politician. Um, he wants free movement to continue and he's not alone within the Conservative Party. There are a lot of um, pro, well, rem Remainers basically still within the Conservative Party pro-EU uh, Conservative MPs. Um, recently, uh, the Migration Advisory Committee has basically uh, been instructed to uh, complete, set up and complete a year-long study on EU migration, which, again, could be problematic because it may discover that the cost is too high. The cost of leaving the EU is too high, and I'm not just talking about in, in terms of you know, pennies and pounds, I'm talking in terms of the social issues and also in terms of the economic issues of, you know, telling tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of, of EU um, citizens to to leave, to go home or to, to not allow them in. Because, and I, again, I'll get onto this later when I'm talking about um, the economics, our our economy is in, intrinsically linked to the European Union and the workers, um, businesses rely on the workers from the European Union. So the next point is looking at the economy. And again, uh, interestingly, according to a report issued by the Global Council, a deal which is of most benefit politically so like giving us policy independence, you know, the ability to make our own laws would be the most damaging economically. A deal which is of most benefit politically would be the most damaging economically. And again, that's, that's worth considering. The fact that we want our political independence, we want to be able to make our own laws, but we also want to keep our economy going. Well, we, we cannot that age-old phrase, we cannot have our cake and eat it too. We can't be politically independent from the European Union and have a, a strong and stable economy. We can't leave and make our own laws without damaging our economy. I think, for me, that's the biggest problem. That is the biggest issue that we face. This... Um, you know this dissonance this this difference between what we expect what we want we want both of these things we want political independence from the european union but we also want a strong economy well basically according to the global council who've done this study that will not happen we get one or the other or we get some 
some combination of both, but obviously that way it's it's not going to be the the strongest possible deal. Um, in terms of what sort of model we probably will uh, follow, we're looking at five possible models, with two being the most likely, and the two most likely ones are a free trade based approach, um, which is um, basically where the UK is free to agree free trade agreements independently. The UK's relationship with the EU is its, uh, itself governed by a free trade agreement. Tariff barriers are unlikely in this system, but as with all free trade agreements, the UK will need to, uh, to trade off uh, depth, which basically means that they would have to agree to common standards and regulation with some independence. So again, you can see there that basically economically that's beneficial. However, there's still regulation, there's still laws there which we will have to abide by. Um, the other one which, which is most likely is the Swiss style approach, which is basically where the UK and the EU could agree a set of bilateral accords which govern UK access to the single market in specific sectors. Um, however, there's concern in Brussels in particular about the fact that we might try and cherry pick um, our sectors that we want uh, access to. Uh, the UK would have to become a follower of regulation in the sectors covered, um, but then negotiate free trade agreements separately from that. So there are similarities in both those systems. Um, both are possible, however, <laughs> The, the Swiss style one in particular is less attractive to the EU and the free trade based uh, approach is could work. However, it's, um, it depends on the deal. It depends on what we actually uh, manage to achieve within those negotiations. Who knows what we could achieve? The Institute for Fiscal Studies um, basically have concluded uh, that what the, the, the net effect of, of leaving the EU is going to be financially damaging, no matter what. I'm just going to read uh, a portion of some of the conclusions that they make in their report. Um, I'm just going to remind myself exactly what that report is called. Brexit and the UK's public finances <clears throat> is what it's called. So I'm just going to read a portion of that. Um, their conclusions there. So they say, quote, the mechanical effect of leaving the EU would be to improve the UK's public finances by uh, the order of £8 billion, assuming the UK did not subsequently sign up to uh, EEA or an alternative EU trade deal that involved contributions to the EU budget. However, there is an overwhelming consensus among those who have made estimates of the consequences of Brexit for national income that it would reduce national income in both the short and long runs. The economic reasons for this, increased uncertainty, higher cost of trade and reduced FDI are clear. The only significant exception to this consensus is e economists for Brexit. In the short run, our estimates therefore suggest that the overall effect of Brexit would be to damage the public finances. 
on the basis of estimates by the NIESR, which is the National Institute for Economic and Social Research. The effect could be £20 billion and £40 billion in uh, 2019 to 20, more than enough to wipe out the planned surplus. In the long run, however, GDP would likely mean lower cash levels of public spending. To put this in context, dealing with the public finance effort, uh, sorry, public finance effect would require at least an additional one or two years of austerity, spending cuts, tax rises, at the same rate as we have experienced recently to get the public finances back to balance, should that remain the government's priority. Following this path would also mean government debt remaining higher than otherwise and additional debt interest payments. These are important costs that would mean difficult decisions on tax, benefits and public services but are not unmanageable if we wanted to pay them. The fiscal effects of leaving the EU would of course be only one part of the wider economic, social and political impacts of Brexit, all of which need to be taken into account. So um, basically as with a lot of a lot of what's going on, it's it's pretty messy. There's a lot of numbers being thrown around. It would appear that um, you know the money we are going to gain back will, according to many predictions, basically be wiped out by um, everything else that we we are going to have to do to make up that that difference. There is this definite no. However, there is the the Institute for Fiscal Studies. They obviously do put a lot of research into this. They know what they're talking about. Um, my my biggest concern is that you know if this is true, if they are accurate here, uh, then we're in for a, we're in for a bumpy ride economically. Are there any positives? Um, well, as far as I could see, um, I've been reading uh, another report from the Confederation of British Industry. Uh, who represent 190,000 businesses, which is about a third of the private sector workers in the UK. Um, and they have said that they're committed to playing their part throughout the process of leaving the European Union. Basically, they've set out a, a near 100-page document on um, what they hope to see and what they intend to do to help the government to actually achieve the best results. Um, for for Britain. However, having said that, the um, again the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, say that the things that they want or need um, are things like barrier-free uh, relationship, a clear plan that gives certainty, a migration system that gives businesses access to skills and labour they need, protection of social and economic benefits of EU funding, and a smooth exit, avoiding this cliff edge which Amber Rudd has also discussed. It's potentially where she got that phrase from. Um, all those five things are not certainties by any means. They are not certainties. So what if, what if we cannot do those things that the CBI are saying that they need to ensure the economy continues um, or businesses continue to succeed in this sense. So on to the third and final um, section, factor, that we've, we've got to consider. Um, again, messy in terms of laws and regulation. 
um, the estimates of the percentage of laws dictated to us by the EU vary from 13% to 65%. So either just over 10% of our laws are dictated to us by the EU or two-thirds of our laws are dictated to us by the EU, which is a, it's a, big, a big difference there. And I think a lot of that comes down to, well, which are our, our laws? which are EU laws, which is a combination of both. It is all very complex. Um, so that's from, uh, from Full Fact, there, the website Full Fact. Um, in terms of which legislation comes from the EU, it is mostly in terms of agriculture, trade and environment. These are, these are the um, areas which the EU do in many ways dictate to us. So what can what can Brexiteers celebrate? Um, well, the things again discussed before the referendum, such as you know these ridiculous laws um, pertaining to toasters, bananas, light bulbs, balloons. You know you you can look up. I was I was on the the Express website. You can look up uh, a lot of lists of these are the most ridiculous laws that the EU um, gives to us. Um, I also found um, a figure of 27.4 billion euros on uh, a website called Open Europe, which apparently we could save um, if if we managed to uh, overturn a lot of, of European laws. So that's, that's a possibility there. That's something that could happen. Um, however, as a Remainer myself, this is what we worry about. We're worried about losing laws, such as the right to be forgotten online, uh, the 48-hour-a-week directive, the common fisheries policy, uh, which means British fishermen could no longer access EU waters, environmental laws such as uh, renewables directive and the EU climate and energy package, and banking regulation. These are all things that Remainers will be concerned about. Um, as I mentioned in the timeline, the, the Great Repeal Bill, its its primary intention, its primary focus is to um, repeal, take back a lot of these European laws and change them into British laws. Either yeah, either get rid of them entirely or, or convert them into, into British laws. Now, if we are talking about two-thirds of our laws being... European laws, then that's that's a hell of a lot. It's a hell of a lot, and I think this is why um, Theresa May has has attempted to uh, suggest, or she she started to suggest that she's gonna push some of these laws through um, without consulting Parliament. Which you know, some people are uh, comparing her there to uh, Henry the Eighth, as she is attempting to force through um, legislation uh, using, apparently, uh, the Statute of Proclamations of 1539, which basically gave Henry VIII the power to legislate by proclamation. Um, and obviously this is coming up against opposition from from other parties, um, basically. The, there is there's a possibility there that using these, these sweeping powers could lead to making hasty, ill-thought-out laws. I mean, that's why we have, uh, you know, a parliamentary democracy.
to avoid one person's uh, opinion gaining too much um, clout, as it were. So what what can we say? How how can we conclude this? I think the biggest problem we have is the infighting, to be honest. And I'm not suggesting that you know Labour, Lib Dems, or, or the SNP should roll over and say yes, this is what we're going to do. But there does need to be cross party cooperation. We are not going to you know this is happening no matter what. We're not going to achieve a very good outcome without cooperation we need to work together to do the, the you know gain the very best deal that we can do i think that it's going to be plain sailing absolutely not and to, to be honest i think we will in the next two three five years ten years whatever we will be in a worse state than we are now that is my prediction and maybe i'm a pessimist maybe i'm just a realist i don't, I don't know but I don't think this is going to be beneficial. I still believe that. I'm not angry about it, and I know it's happening, and I know that you know we're going to have to get the best deal possible. But I don't think it will be beneficial for us. I don't see what we can gain from this. You know, the the biggest arguments were um, anti-migration. Well, migration is is difficult to control. And any deal with the EU will require free movement of people. So therefore, that's that's not going to really happen. In terms of the laws, well, as I've pointed out, it is very complex. Some of the laws we may just end up keeping, converting into UK laws. And financially, it's going to be very difficult to benefit as well, as I've previously stated, because it's a trade-off between political independence and economic security the more political independence we gain the less economically stable and the more economically damaging the deal will probably be so it is going to be a very difficult tumultuous couple of years and beyond whether we actually do end up getting a good deal depends on the strength of our negotiating team but also on cross-party cooperation whether that will happen and what what will be the result, the end result in the next few years or the next you know, couple of decades to come remains to be seen.